Beatles words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. You're not working without. It's like that we're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Another podcast recommendation. You must remember this. Karina Longworth shows us all how it's done with this excellent series telling tales from Hollywood's golden age. Also worth hearing is the companion podcast You Must Remember Manson, a series all about the Tate LaBianca murders. We've got as far as the early afternoon of January 3rd and in between playing impromptu covers of favourite tunes, the Beatles have made some progress on the new songs Don't Let Me Down and I've Got a Feeling. Seemingly during a period when the tape is turned off, someone suggests they resurrect some old Lennon McCartney originals from their pre-fame days. As the tape is switched back on, John leads the band through the one after 909. He knows the words well, and the rest of the group play enthusiastically. The version of the song they play is closer in feel to the recordings they made in Paul's living room in 1960, although Ringo wouldn't have been present for these, and not the aborted 1963 recordings at EMI. When they finish the song, everyone is full of praise. George says they should do it in the show, and definitely not rehearse it too much. Inspired by this, there follows a number of other early pre-Beatles songs called back from their distant memories. John starts playing one called Because I Know You Love Me So. Paul and John harmonise with audibly broad smiles on this one. There's another run-through of the one after 909, more to remind themselves of the structure than anything. Paul comments after this that he's finally realised what the song is about and mentions that it's a particular favourite of his brother Michael. John comments that he was never happy with the words but Paul thinks they are great and George offers the opinion that people don't listen to the words if the song is bopping along. 
Paul is reminded of a song that John's friend Pete Shotton has suggested they resurrect, If Tomorrow Ever Comes, a song that has never been caught on tape before or since. George comments that it's very country-influenced, as a lot of Beatles songs were. Continuing with this trip down memory lane, George plays the intro to one of Paul's songs, Thinking of Linking, as he will do again in 1995 for the Beatles anthology bonus feature. However, in 1969, Paul is less familiar with the words than he will be later. Paul comments that he doesn't think that ever got there, i.e. it wasn't ever finished. They then play a short rendition of a song by John called Won't You Please Say Goodbye. This reminds George of Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home To Me. John agrees and states that's where he got the idea from. George then leads the band through a slow but reverential version of Cooke's song. As this draws to a close, George starts a version of Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike. Of all the Beatles procrastinators, George has to be the most guilty. In fairness, a band making any kind of music is never really wasted time because by playing music, ideas evolve, playing tightens up and the band gels into a cohesive unit. But with a film crew wasting footage on this, it does seem a bit expensive to not have some discipline. The Marvin Gaye song inspires them to play a quite ragged version of You Can't Do That, B-side to Can't Buy Me Love and a live staple in 1964. However, they seem to have forgotten it by this point and run out of steam as they reach the middle eight. Paul asks George about the tune they had been discussing and George reminds him, hippie hippie shake. Paul then guides the band through a quite heavy late 60s version, complete with some interesting pauses that displace the rhythm of the song. It's not certain if this was a serious contender for the live show, but would have made an exciting addition if they'd have pursued it. Finally getting the band back to the job in hand, George of all people suggests they rehearse two of us before lunch. Paul says they'll never get it, but George is insistent, yes they will. John calls it a lovely tune in a Welsh accent reminiscent of his friend actor Victor Spinetti, and Paul repeats it so it's an in-joke between them. Paul mentions Glyn Johns has suggested two of us would sound better with two acoustics. John then questions why they should rehearse it on their current instruments if that's how Paul wants to do it. Then he suggests one acoustic. This leads Paul to start thinking about the logistics of filling time while someone changes guitar. An interesting attitude to have. In modern concerts, musicians change guitar almost every song. Paul is suggesting announcements between songs, but John seems to have fixed opinions against speeches, as he calls it. Contrary to popular myth about these sessions, John is very engaged throughout. And so the Beatles set about rehearsing two of us, and we'll now rejoin them. Paul counts in a recap of two of us. He's either not got the lyrics or he's just vocalising as he knows this is just refreshing everyone's memory. They almost lose the rhythm for the hook of the song. The feed changes. Johnny's only vocalising his part. 
George remembers Paul wanted the second mid lane at double speed. Paul concedes it's better to just leave them both at the same speed and John agrees. A lot of this is hard to hear as the main feed seems to be perhaps a boom mic. What I can hear is Paul saying, it was to that I never know, I never made it, I think it's a novelty. George says, you can have that for the big band arrangement. Paul replies, we must get that mid-late. All right, you know, we don't want it to be all, and then the sync beep obscures it. Tape cuts. This is the same conversation from a different source. Well, let's do the two middle eights the same. Yes. George says it wasn't nice that fast one. I never made it. You know. I think it's a novelty. You can have that the big band arrangement. So we must must get that middle eight. All right, you know. When Paul says, we don't want it to be, John chips in with what sounds like, on your own up there. <laughs> George states the obvious, we must get them all, every bit of them all right. That, keep, hear what I hear on that one. Uh, you, uh, just do the middle eight again. <laughs> Paul wanting something extra musically to come out of the middle eight. He's focusing on every. Once again, Paul vocalizes a specific guitar part for George, not trusting him to create his own. I don't know what, but something there. You know. George suggesting something different, Paul accepting he's not sure what he wants exactly. For once, George is vocalizing a guitar part, but suggesting an abrupt pause before returning to the verse. John thinks it now sounds like something by the group The Loving Spoonful. John's choice of eyewear was said to be inspired by that band singer John Sebastian. John says he's playing a riff that sounds like one of the Spoonfuls. Paul is happy with that. Two of us riding nowhere. There's a bit more control needed when I'm down there. Despite deciding yesterday that John would take the lower vocal part, Paul is still singing it and complaining it's too low for him. Eventually, as we know, John will take this vocal line and Paul will harmonise. <laughs> John now playing his Loving Spoonful riff, George playing stabs, and Paul tuning his bass. John 
John starts the low part, but Paul takes over. John doing the high harmony still. John now beginning to chunk his guitar part in the style that Paul would refer to as chunky. Ringo forgot the drum change. Paul reminds him. They forget the mid late. It's B flat first, then D Yeah. That's good that you just that's the best way to keep going all the time. Paul likes John's chugging guitar part. Eventually this will be used in the song Get Back instead. Okay. After hearing the way Ringo picks up John's rhythm, you can hear George say, start it, or something similar. That's how to start the song. Paul agrees. Two, three, four. We're going home. Note here the first appearance of an outro for the song. This is how they'll eventually finish the song in the released version. thinks it's hard to sing the low part all the way through and chug on the guitar but he'll give it a go okay. one two three to four two of us riding nowhere it's immediately better John follows Paul into the high parts of the hook, losing his note, and Paul corrects him. John saying, maybe you could do that, presumably to George referring to the high part. John has his part worked out now, and then forgets it again. Paul reminds George to play that guitar bit coming out of the middle eight. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just like a, a top note. You and me wearing raincoats, standing solo. You and me chasing paper, getting nowhere. As Paul demonstrates the high harmony to George, note Ringo suddenly playing the galloping drum part he'd adopt for Get Back. They try two options for George's high part, descending with the melody line and staying on the same note throughout. Paul thinks the second option is nicer. Okay, one, two, three, four. 
after another counting, George asks, From the top? John forgets his note again for the hook. Paul tries to remind him. George has opted to sing the high line descending the first time and on the same note the second time in the verse. Paul now wants to fill in this gap too. And with that, rehearsals conclude for two of us. It's lunchtime. We won't be hearing their whole break, but we get a few minutes of conversation before Peter Sutton stops the tape. Great. George starts Dylan's All Along the Watchtower, which he'd already quoted to Mal Evans earlier. Paul jokes in response to the line, There must be some way out of here. They call it the door. He's on form today. A humorous exchange, George saying to Paul, there seemed to be someone fixing your car when I arrived. Paul replies, yes, it's the windscreen washer, meaning a person who washes windscreens. George takes him literally and says his windscreen washer on his car is also broken. Mal lets him know they've washed his car too. Paul offering someone a tangerine. This will follow on from his apple this morning. A lot of noise of people milling around. George asks, Paul, who are they? Still not clear whether it was mechanics or car washers he was referring to. In the summer of 1968, Paul McCartney took a drive from his home in St John's Wood, travelling some 20 miles to Weybridge in Surrey. His purpose? To visit the newly estranged Cynthia Lennon and her son Julian. Paul had always felt a close bond with Julian and felt particularly sorry for him losing his family unit. When all the Beatles had travelled to Greece a year earlier, in the over-optimistic hopes of buying an island. Julian and Paul were often seen playing together. Pictures taken on the trip show Julian holding onto Paul's hand and not his father's or his mother's. Reflecting on this during the car journey, a phrase entered Paul's fertile mind. Hey Jules, don't make it bad. Gradually the verse to a song began to emerge. Fortunately for us, Paul had planned for the eventuality of being caught by the muse while driving. Mounted in the dashboard of his Aston Martin DB6 was a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Grabbing the mic and pushing the right buttons allowed Paul to capture what would become the Beatles' biggest and best-loved hit. This same DB6 is the car that Paul took to Twickenham each day for sessions, often giving road manager Kevin Harrington a lift. Although not today, as we've established, he's not on set. An evolution from the iconic James Bond DB5 and lacking its predecessor's clean lines, it is a much less revered classic car. 
despite being faster and more stable and roomier. An ideal car therefore in which to bundle Linda, Heather and the dogs Martha and Eddie and go get lost somewhere Sunday driving. Aside from the tape recorder it also boasted a Philips record player although one presumes this could only be used while stationary. George on the other hand had progressed from his Aston Martin, a DB5, via a Mini Cooper to a much larger luxury car, the Mercedes 600, a three-ton giant powered by a 6.3-litre V8 engine. The car is actually caught on film at the beginning of the Savile Row segment of the Let It Be film. George is seen in a floppy felt hat locking the car door and heading to the entrance. According to Kevin Harrington, they couldn't legally park in front of the building, so the keys were handed in for one or another assistant to find a better parking spot, and or take the expensive machines for a, a risky spin around town. With George's car, they couldn't stray too far. It only did eight miles to the gallon. The luxury features, air conditioning, pneumatic suspension, hydraulic windows, all added to the weight. Despite costing more than a Rolls-Royce, John would be sufficiently impressed after these sessions to order his own. It's these two cars that Mal has arranged to get washed today. Presumably John Yoko and Ringo were chauffeured in. You can now hear Michael Lindsay Hogg in the background. Hard to decipher, yet they... something today. But next time, we'll do one fine. A voice says to Michael, lunch is two o'clock. Michael replies, yeah, as long as we can. Tape cuts. It wasn't what one might have thought would be the application of smell vision <laughs> Paul is talking to Michael and Glyn John's in the background. You can hear Dennis O'Dell having another conversation. So incredible. I'll try and remember and someday I'll... Let me know. Let you know and uh, I it's really try bad. and ring my I think tongue. it's a really bad idea. smell vision Yeah. Yeah, I, I've always thought, but this thing, you know, I thought... No, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember a call. Very bad idea. You worked in those pictures. Tammy's, Tammy's busting up first, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's known as the giggles at tea or the Sunday tea. Me and my brother used to get it, it was terrible. Because it was so funny, you know. And we were just collapsing, around, and you what, knew you shouldn't be. Like church it giggles. It funnier, yeah. Like church giggles, yeah. It's a strange conversation, but Paul shares an anecdote about him and his brother Michael. Tea on Sunday when we'd done something wrong, and it was just a scream. The reason, the reason I'm not an actor anymore is one, I wasn't very good and wasn't hired very much. <laughs> also, when I was acting, I was, Brian, I was yeah. 17 years old and weighed 240 pounds. And the top of it off, what I always used to do on stage was break up, especially in Shakespeare, which I was the only I could get into. And any time, Shakespeare just creases people's death scenes. Big crowds, a bunch of people debagging everybody, you know, in the background. Shakespeare's great that way. Michael Lindsay Hogg also shares an anecdote about getting the giggles in his former acting career. Just an observation. People don't whistle anymore while they're working, do they? We also wrote a few good words. 
Paul is saying something too far away from the mic to be intelligible, but it amuses Glyn. Tape cuts, the Beatles return to rehearsal after their lunch. John, George and Paul are toying with what we now call the Sun King riff. It's part of Don't Let Me Down that wasn't used, so now it can be repurposed. John plays here and later in the session is an embryonic version of the song that will become Sun King. However, even John doesn't know this yet. At the moment, it's a spare section left over when Don't Let Me Down was assembled. As such, I can't really do much analysis of the song. At present, it's just one of a number of riffs John plays. Nice, that purple. Paul comments on the purple light on the backdrop behind them. Hello. John, seemingly inspired by the TV-style mics they're using, starts a mock interview with Paul. For a mere £3,616, reduced from £4,521, you can get your hands on a pair of original 1969 vintage AKG C30A tube condenser microphones, complete with original cables and power supply. These aren't the exact model of microphone that the Beatles are singing into. Those are C30Cs. The difference between the two is the most distinctive thing about these unique mics. The long stainless steel gooseneck that acts as a stand and a mic in one. Favoured at the time by TV talk shows because they were unobtrusive, which appears to be the main reason the Beatles are using them here. John and Paul are doing mock interviews as a direct reference to this. Pictures of the session show several square boxes looking like car batteries at the Beatles' feet. These are the power supplies slash preamps for each mic and it's a fair guess to say that it's these plugged into an extension cable that keep failing earlier today. It's unlikely that these were the Beatles property. The same mics were used on this soundstage for the Hey Jude Revolution clips so may have belonged to the studio or been hired by the film crew. But if you ever wondered why the Beatles are using such strange looking mics in the Let It Be film, your question really should be, why not? They were the industry standard for TV recordings, often seen capturing live vocals from artists appearing on top of the pops. As Paul busks a bluesy kind of bass line, John and George are talking about what kind of audience they want. George likens it to the animals reuniting, which they discussed yesterday. Michael is saying, what, just like eight people? John runs with this idea. Fantastic, 
John has some more conceptual ideas such as performing for one person or one family. The audience will be discussed further on in the session, but this is the seeds of what will become the rooftop concert, playing to an audience you can't see. The current pandemic has shown very clearly that performances to tiny audiences are very dull and flat. More on this later. I could be wrong, but that sounds like Georgie saying, well, that was a bloody abortion which is a bit of a slang metaphor for a messy disaster. Not sure what he's referring to, if that is indeed what he said. My transcript says, well, that was a great lunch. Paul suggests learning a new song while Ringo plays with the tambourine attachment mounted to his hi-hat. You can hear him sounding it by opening and closing the hi-hat with the pedal. Should we learn another one, Marie? A new one. Once again, George leads the band into another cover. This time, Short Fat Fanny. As John seems to be playing that quite complicated rhythm part, I think it's fair now to say that that's George whistling. In 1957, when Little Richard turned to religion following an Australian tour and gave up fame and success, Bumps Blackwell needed a replacement star for his speciality label. Larry Williams was a friend of Richard's, living in the singer's Hollywood home and previously touring with him as a support act. Blackwell convinced him to record some rock and roll songs in Richard's style. The result was some of the most exciting rock and roll committed to record. Short Fat Fanny was a number one hit. The Beatles, John in particular, were great fans and covered two of his hits, Bad Boy and Dizzy Miss Lizzie. They're interrupted by Mal who asks Paul, does he know something? But it's unintelligible. Paul doesn't know and asks the band what they like to rehearse. All I can make out is Neil asked, presumably Neil Aspinall, the Apple business manager. Now Donna, what number should we do next? John ignores him and starts Dead Betty's classic Midnight Special. Often credited to folk singer Led Belly, the Midnight Special is a traditional folk song of unknown provenance. It was most likely originated by prisoners in the American South and refers to the light of a train shining through a prison window as a source of salvation. The lyrics John and George are singing were first captured in print in 1905. The first commercial recording of the song was in 1926 by Dave Pistol Pete Cutrell. Lead Belly's version was recorded by John and Alan Lomax while he was serving time in Angola prison for murder. It's possible the odd meter at the end of the fourth line inspired John Lennon to do similar impatient tricks in songs like All You Need Is Love and Good Morning, Good Morning. Oh, 
John attempts a solo the first time around, the second time it's George. George quotes Seven Drunken Nights by the Dubliners. Seven Drunken Nights is a humorous Irish folk song released by the Dubliners in March of 1967. It actually tells the story of a drunken man being cuckolded but falling night after night for the increasingly implausible excuses from his wife. Its origins go back to the 1760s and the song sold on the streets as a broadsheet called The Merry Cuckold and the Kind Wife, which is probably a bit too on the nose. Pardon? What's the use of sober? Again? Again drunk again. <laughs> John replies with another drinking song, What's the use of getting sober? What's the use of getting sober when you're going to get drunk again is a 1942 recording by Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five. It reached number one in the race record charts that year. Evidence once again that the Beatles' influences often predate rock and roll by a long time. This prompts George to sing a slurred version of What Do You Want to Make Those Eyes at Me For? by Emile Ford and the Checkmates. Perhaps lunch was of the liquid variety. What do you want to make those eyes at me for would have been heard by the pre-Beatles in 1959 when it was a hit for Emil Ford and the Checkmates. Recorded at Lansdowne Studios and produced by the legendary Joe Meek, this version topped the UK charts for six weeks. The song, however, is much older, written for the Broadway musical Follow Me in 1916 by Joseph McCarthy, Howard Johnson and James V. Monaco. <laughs> what a man. What Have you heard about that? Albert King goes the rocker one on Stax, the groove, and he oh, says yeah. he's Albert King's, B.B. Uh, King's brother, and B.B. King says, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> he's not my brother, baby. And uh, they both, one sings one called Lucy about his guitar, and the other one sings one called Lucille about his guitar. It's too much, just want to see it. George relates a story about blues guitarists Albert and B.B. King, who George is keen to go and see. Interestingly, George doesn't connect the reference to Lucille and Lucy, their guitars, to his own guitar, supposedly also christened Lucy. I've now discovered this is supposedly named after red-haired actress Lucille Ball. In this context, it's weird that he doesn't mention it. Maybe the guitar acquired the name a bit later. In 
the absence of anyone else suggesting anything, George offers to teach them a slow one. John plays the riff to money, that's what I want. There's really got one down here that we haven't done. It's all written out on your schedules. If you will all now turn to page 33. Oh, it's getting very... Paul appears to have a list of new songs, presumably compiled by Mal. In fact, they all have schedules. George is impressed at the efficiency. George here referring to the lyrics of She Came In Through The Bathroom Window, so he's at least seen the words to this song, if not heard a demo. George offers to rehearse She Came In Through The Bathroom Window, but Paul steers him back onto All Things Must Pass. George is either complimentary at having a clear set of lyrics for everything or sarcastic that they've included Maxwell's Silver Hammer. It's almost like a little bit of passive rebellion at being managed. Bottoms up. If you all turn now to sunrise. Bottoms up, a friendly colloquialism usually expressed before drinking. I think the session has now got a bit more alcohol fueled. Is this a Harry song? Yeah. Paul calls All Things Must Pass, Sunrise. John asks if it's a Harry song, a reference to George's own publishing company. Originally called Morniorg Limited, Harry Songs Limited is a music publishing company founded by George Harrison in 1964. At the time, George was still under contract to Northern Songs, the publishing company set up by Dick James and Brian Epstein on behalf of Lennon and McCartney. George and Ringo were signed to Northern Songs in 1963 and were minority shareholders. George quickly became dissatisfied with the arrangement when he learned that as major shareholders, John and Paul earned more from his songs than he did. The implicit lowly status that this arrangement accorded him led him to directly write the rather bitter and rueful 1967 contribution to the forthcoming Sgt Pepper album titled It's Only a Northern Song. Fortunately, producer George Martin convinced him to see if he could come up with something better rather than bitter. The Northern Songs contract finally expired in March 1968. This did mean that all the music for the album Wonderwall Music would be the last to be published under this old arrangement. The first released Harrison tune published by Harry Songs was Sour Milk Sea, the single by Jackie Lomax. Subsequent to this, George's four contributions to the Beatles' double album were published by his own company. John makes these slightly pointed references to George's music, and even George himself as Harry Songs, perhaps as a put-down, trying to diminish George's growing independence from the group. It's, uh, yeah. Give me some truth or something. In the guitar case. 
Mal bustles around them and John asks him to find his lyrics to another song, Give Me Some Truth. Paul seems to know this, so this may also have been worked on during that last Lennon-McCartney songwriting session that produced I've Got a Feeling and Two of Us. In fact, it sounds like Paul contributed something to Give Me Some Truth. John refers to it as his hangman part. Perhaps this is the Money for Rope section that he sings just now. It was all right. No, 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 freaked out. Yeah. Yellow belly son of Gary Cooper. Gonna yeah. No, me. Selling me dope. Got a hope. It's just money for rope. Yellow belly son of Gary while they go through this George asks Mal what other guitars of his are available so while pictures show him using the Epiphone Casino during the next sequence he may have been playing something else before George begins to direct the rehearsal. Yeah, this is really, if we can, uh, because there's no solo or anything complicated, it's purely just rhythmical and vocal, then if we suddenly add a louder organ, then you, know, you could, More you're easy. invited to play it. E. Maybe we suddenly have one. Oh. <laughs> Do we and have a speaker man with that loudy organ? Can you plug him in? We're pretending to be the band for this one. And thinking of Garth Hudson from the band, suggests John played the Lowry organ that they jokingly say has magically appeared. George says we're pretending to be the band for this one. John jokes, I have been on all of them. Writing in their column in the June 1967 edition of the Beatles Monthly Book, Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall gave a contemporaneous account of the March the 1st recording session for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. In it, they wrote that the song starts with McCartney playing Hammond organ using a special organ stop, which gives a bell-like overchord effect, which makes it sound like a Celeste. They are almost correct. Whilst EMI Studios did own a Hammond organ, it wasn't capable of producing the bell-like sound the Beatles wanted. 
but another EMI property, the Lowry DS01 Heritage Deluxe Organ, using a combination of the presets, harpsichord, vibraharp, guitar and music box, hit the spot perfectly. While the Hammond has achieved legendary status due to its association with artists like Jimmy Smith and Booker T and the MGs, the Lowry has faded into obscurity. Vintage Lowry heritage organs are an endangered species and you won't find digital virtual plug-in versions for your home studio. There is a fundamental difference in how the Lowry and the Hammond work. The Hammond uses mechanical tone wheels that the organist controls via drawbars, adding layers of harmonics to the note. The Lowry is all electronic inside and in those valve powered days that means wires, lots and lots of wires. Its process is the reverse of the Hammond's. A complex tone signal is fed through one or more filters to eliminate certain harmonics. This is in fact closer to how conventional synthesizers work. As such, it was a more versatile instrument than the Hammond, but perhaps lacked its richness of tone. In the hands of a virtuoso like jazz organist Alan Haven, it's a very cool sounding instrument indeed. I recommend his 1960s live duo recordings with drummer Tony Crombie. It was also the organ of choice for Harry Stoneham, best known as the band leader for the chat show hosted by Michael Parkinson. One feature of the Heritage is a switch on the swell pedal that activates a function called Lowry Glide. This bends or glides the pitch of the organ down a half tone and back when the switch is released, useful for expressive passages. John will be playing with this feature a little too much later in the sessions. For an example of Lowry Glide in the hands of a professional, check out the intro to The Doors song The Unknown Soldier. After spending Thanksgiving with Bob Dylan and the band and being particularly impressed with the virtuosity of organist Garth Hudson, who also favoured the Lowry organ, George may have been instrumental in securing the EMI Heritage Deluxe for use on his compositions, aiming as he was for a more band-like sound. George tried to play this song this morning and was interrupted by Paul testing the echo on the drums. Now he's noodling away on the bass. It's the middle of the afternoon. The Beatles have been here five hours or more and this is the first new song they've tried today. George is partly to blame, distracting the others, leading them through various performances of cover songs. Either he's doing this to delay having to teach the band his song through insecurity, or he's softening them up by creating a fun atmosphere so that they're more amenable to his ideas. Paul talking to Mal. It's difficult to decipher, but it sounds like, how's that being shot? Mal replying, possibly stuck it over the side, the bit on the side of the doubles. Okay, just change the phone. Yeah, okay, but the thing is, really, like D, F sharp minor, flat minor, A, and for the mid, the end of the verse. 
George interrupts Paul very quickly showing him the chords. Note the contrast to Paul's working method. Paul searches for a bass line. John follows some written down chords, we presume, as he doesn't ask how the song goes before joining in. And with the band starting to rehearse All Things Must Pass, we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.